you have your Bible, you can open to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We are in week 6 of Romans 8. All of Christ for all of life. All of Christ for all of life. Now, this is not particularly a Mother's Day sermon, all right? It's, if you've been here long enough to let, the dru, uh, to let the dew dry out, then you know that we do not uh, arrange our preaching schedule according to Hallmark's calendar, all right? So breathe easy, mothers. Uh, I don't intend to beat you over the head today or to overly celebrate you either. So, uh, but I intend to encourage you from the scriptures. The Bible has greater instructions, greater help, greater encouragements to mothers and non-mothers than any afternoon Hallmark movie with a glass of wine can do for you. I promise. All right. So I intend to encourage you with the word of God today. We're going to examine verses 28 through 30 of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And these verses, here is what we see. This is uh, the main point I want to give to you today, and you can write this down if you're taking notes. Uh, admittedly, it's a bit lengthy. Uh, all things work together for the eternal good. All things work together for the eternal good. I want you to note that word eternal there. Of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the eternal good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. See, it's not a Mother's Day sermon specifically, right? Yet, this does not mean that a mother will not find great instruction in it, great help, great encouragement from this passage. To be crystal clear, though, so that we're all on the same page as we begin today, I believe this sermon is for every one of us. I believe these encouragements are for you, uh, whether you are a man or a woman, a boy or a girl today. These things are glorious truths meant for you to take hold of and to believe with all of your heart, mind, and strength. Amen? Would you stand to your feet now as we read God's Word? I'm going to start in verse 1 today, even though our text is 28 through 30, because I think it's worth getting the context of everything that's happening as we look at what is the foundation for all of these glorious blessings, these privileges that Paul has laid out for us in verses uh, 1 through 27. And so, beginning in verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, 
the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of, uh, of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by which, or by whom, sorry, we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word and this time we have now in it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would guide us, direct our hearts, direct our minds to see, to believe, to understand these truths and uh, build our lives into uh, fruitful organisms for the kingdom and the glory of Christ alone. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Before I get into the content of this text today, I wanted to uh, remind us of the context. I wanted to draw our attention to that, uh, which is why we read all of those verses just now. But Paul is building toward his closing argument, which is more doxology than argument, and we'll see that next week. Uh, but in verses 28 through 30, he's striving to ground the hope of Christians uh, that we see uh, all throughout verses 1 through 27, he's grounding those hopes, those privileges that Christians know in the providence and the sovereignty of God. 
It's an argument that he strengthens in next week's passage as well. He, he goes on to explain why you can believe what you see today with next week's passage. So some summaries of the truths that we've observed so far. In verses 1 through 4, we establish that in an act of astounding grace, God condemns sin in Christ, setting believers free from condemnation and free to live lives according to the Spirit of God. In verses 5 through 11, we said that that same spirit which we've received, the one that has set us free, grants us life and peace. That the spirit enables our minds to be set on the things of the spirit. We are able to walk according to the spirit of God. In verses 12 through 17, we saw that God, by his spirit, bestows on his people life. That he adopts them as his own children and he appoints them to be co-heirs with Christ. Then in verse 18, the focus transitions to the sufferings that we must endure with Christ, as we saw in verse 17, that if we are going to be glorified with Christ also. And so in verse 18, we, we saw that the key to Christian suffering, verses 18 through 25, the key to Christian suffering is to keep your eyes on future glories. It's to keep your eyes on the hope of heaven. And then last week, we saw that the Holy Spirit in verses 26 through 27 is our advocate in prayer. He's a help to us. He is he's carrying, literally, our prayers to God, and he is working God's will in us as a result of those ordained prayers. By faith in Christ, what we have seen then is that we have everything we need for life and godliness. Truly, it is all of Christ for all of life. By faith in Christ, we see that God is graciously, that God is utterly transforming your life. He's giving you the Spirit as your helper in all things unto the transformation of your life so that, as our text shows today, you would be conformed to the image of God's own Son. These are supremely glorious truths, any one of which could cause you to stand up and dance a jig if you weren't so Baptist, right? Yet, when we suffer, we are tempted to doubt the goodness of God's plan for us. When we go through hardship, when we go through sufferings, when we go through pain, we are tempted to doubt whether or not God could actually work together all things for the good of his people. We wonder, is this true? Which brings us to the content of today's passage. Because last week we saw that the Spirit is taking our prayers to the Lord, and he's working the will of God in us, but you might still be tempted to say, yes, but I suffer. Let's only read those verses for you again that we're looking at now. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom, he also, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want to show you that in verse 28, you have another statement of truth. It's another privilege of the believer, similar to the privileges we've been seeing. It's all of these things that you've received as being in Christ. Again, all of Christ for all of life. This is another privilege that all things work together for your good because you love God and are called according to his purpose. It's a great privilege that we have. But in verses 29 and 30, what he's doing is laying out the foundation on which all of those truths, all of those privileges must stand. It's the truths there 
uh, of God's predestining things to work in this fashion. I would like to issue to you a pastoral statement, if you will. It's vitally important to remember when you read God's Word, you are reading, what you are reading is divinely breathed by God through the Spirit to men, meaning it's inspired by God. It's sufficient because it is from God. It is infallible because it has its root in God. It cannot fail. It is inerrant because God never errs. Amen? And so too, his word never errs. God spoke these things by his spirit to these biblical writers for the edification of his people. And so therefore, these words, all of them, every word from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation is spoken, written down for your edification. They are trustworthy and true. In other words, these are not Paul's words while Jesus may have said something different. These are not Paul's words while Peter may have wrote something else. These are not Paul's words while Moses may have wrote something uh, that would be contrary to what you read. Everything works together in the scriptures uh, to, uh, to explain to us, to show us, to reveal to us God's truths. These are not opinions of man devoid of God's truth. These are not just mere meanderings of a mind written down that look wise. They are wise because they come from God himself. This is the very word of God. And if we are unsure about what they say, if we are uneasy about the words that he uses, then we need not find fault in the text. We need find fault in our own hearts and minds. We, we must seek the Lord in prayer. We must ask the Spirit to help us in our weaknesses. It's good for us to check any man-made presuppositions at the door when we come to the Scriptures. Amen? Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But we've seen a great deal of privileges afforded to the saints of God in this glorious chapter of Romans. Questions and scoffing and mockings may arise anyway either from outside or from within your own heart and mind. Yeah, the Spirit intercedes for you in trouble. The Spirit intercedes for me in my trouble. But to what benefit? Because I'm still suffering greatly. Or someone may look at you and say, you can say the Spirit intercedes for you, but I can observe your life, and it's marked by suffering, great suffering. So to what benefit is the Spirit of God? Why don't you just abandon him, as Job's wife would have encouraged Job to do? You might hear things like bad things seem to happen to good people and good things seem to happen to bad people. If all things work together for good for those who love God, how can this be? Might be a question, a scoff, a mock that comes your way. But what Paul describes is the greatest privilege of God's people that sits atop all other privileges. And that is that all things are working together for good. And so first, I want you to observe the character of these people. It's not all things work together for the good of all people. It's for who? For those who love God. They love God, right? They're, they're, they're overwhelmed with great affections for and deep loyalty towards God as their chief good, as their highest end. He is supreme above every other being. 
They love him. They're devoted to him. It is your love for God that makes every providence in your life sweet and profitable. Now, a word on providence. Providence is, according to James chapter 5, providence is the merciful and compassionate work of God in every moment of our lives. It's the merciful and compassionate work of God in every moment of our lives. And and so what we're saying is there are no maverick moments. You understand what I mean? There are no rogue moments. There are no uh, rebel moments. Every moment, every millisecond is the working together of all things for a glorious, eternal good according to God's wise counsel alone. Everything works to that end. It must because God is God. Those that love God make the best then of all that he does. And, and they take all that comes their way in faith that he loves them and he means good for them. Everything. The second thing we see about these people is not only that they love God and that the character of these people is that they're called according to God's purpose. He calls his people and they come to him. He calls them according to his purposes and they come to him. Just as Christ describes as the shepherd and the sheep who hear his voice in John chapter 10. He says, all who are sheep hear the voice of the shepherd and they come to him. And we do not deserve the call by any merit of our own. We have not worked unto this. We have not hyped ourselves up to be looked on as beautiful and lovely. And so God says, well, I'll take that one. Or to hype ourselves up and says, look how unlovely he is. I'll take that one, like picking a puppy at the pound. This is not adoption. That, that's not that, it's not that kind of adoption. This is adoption according to the love of God, the loving call of God on someone's life to come and to be his child. We don't deserve the call, but his call is effectual to his own gracious purpose. And second, what we want to observe here is the privilege of the saints. All things work together for good for them. It's a privilege of those who love God that all things are going to work together for good. Now, I want you to have in mind the eternal good. This doesn't mean that everything in every moment looks good in that moment. There there are terrible tragedies. There are terrible things that happen to us that don't look good in the moment, but we must trust that that is according to the providential plan of God for our lives, and it is working together for good, even when we can't see it. Everything that God carries out Every action, every moment, every millisecond that comes into our lives and every single day is according to the eternal good plan of God, which is meant for the good of his people, the glory of his own great name. These two go hand in hand. For when his people enjoy the splendors of his providence, for when his people see that he is amazing, that he is awe-inspiring, even in great distresses, even in great sufferings, they will then magnify his name in all the earth. When we see that God is good, we magnify this good God. And so he works all things together for the good of his people. Those who love him, those whom he loves, according to his providential purpose, so that his people will know his goodness and magnify his name. Now in this way, God's people truly come to do what the psalmist describes in Psalm 34, verse 8, where he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Take refuge in him and find him to be a good refuge. It's a tasting and seeing. 
As you trust the Lord and his providential plans for you, you taste and see that he is good. All the providence of God belong to us. Merciful providences, afflicting providences, personal providences, public providences, they are all for our eternal good. Whether suffering or blessings, they are good. Those things are good which do your soul eternal good. Do you understand what I'm saying? If, if it's a suffering that comes to you from the providential hand of God, then it is meant for your eternal good. And so anything that comes to you for the good of your soul is good. Amen? It's good unto that end. And so this was a realization that Patricia and I had uh, in October. When we went on vacation, we're sitting out back of this little cabin in Pigeon Forge, and we're drinking coffee in the morning and reading, the, reading our Bible. And uh, so we're just over, a month, right out of months, uh, just, just past, uh, from Winnie's passing. And, and we're reflecting on it, and we're just leaning into the Lord as much as we can, praying, singing. Um, and this moment was really a defining moment, I think, for me and probably for Patricia as well in our pursuit of the Lord amid these things. What we saw, what I, what I came to understand, I guess, what the Lord showed us in this moment is that if all things work together for good for those who love him, then Winnie's death is good. That's a hard thing to admit. It's a hard thing to trust the Lord for. But carry that a bit further. What we're saying is, is that it was more good for Patricia and I and for our family and for you all and for our faith and for our eternal good. It was more good for Winnie to pass than to remain with us. That's what we're saying about God's merciful, loving providences, right? Nothing thwarts him. Nothing changes his plans. Nothing, nothing can, can stop those things from happening. So if he's working together all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, then I must see that all that comes to me is the ultimate good. And therefore, you can rejoice, as James says, in trials and afflictions. Not rejoicing over the affliction. You're not rejoicing over the loss of life. You're not rejoicing over the loss of a daughter and a sister and a granddaughter and a friend. You're not rejoicing in that necessarily. You're rejoicing that God is good no matter what and that he means good for you in all of these things. Now, I want to always hold myself up as a hero of the faith. I am not. I have lacked much faith through all of this. But that was one moment where I can still, to this day, look back and say, that's a truth I need to hang on to. When, I, when my faith is failing, when I'm questioning, yeah, but God, if, if you're working together, all things are good. I don't understand this. If I'm questioning that, then I look back to that moment and I say, wait a minute, it's for good also. It's for good too. I don't know all the ways yet, but it's for good also. Amen? It's a tough thing to understand. And so every providence is doing something unto eternal good for you. This is what we're saying. They may be breaking you away from sin. They may be bringing you nearer to God. They may be weaning you away from the world. They may be fitting you. They are all fitting you for heaven. Every providence is fitting you for heaven. We know this because Paul says all things work together for good. And he's already grounded the good in the eternal good. He's already grounded the good in previous verses in the eternal glories to come, right? 
you will share in the glories of Christ, provided you suffer with him also. There's eternal good to come, even though there will be bad moments now. But these are all from the providential hand of God meant for your good. Like a surgeon who cuts and stitches back, he's working unto the patient's good. So does God work all things together for our good, even if he has to cut away something and stitch something back together. He's working for our good. Remember, all of this is not according to the providences themselves. It's not according to the, the moments themselves. The moments are nothing apart from the hand of God who is working those moments together for something, right? Apart from his power and his grace, they're just moments, right? And, and if we think they're just moments, then we might as well be fatalist. If we think they're just moments, we might as well become determinist. We might as well think that God is distant from us and that he has nothing to do with every moment of our lives. But I refuse to serve that God because the Bible doesn't describe that God. The Bible describes a God who is intricately involved in, intimately involved in your life in every single moment of the day, whether in the taking of things or the blessing of things. He's good. He's good. And, we, and he means for you to know this. Paul says, we know this. It's to be known with certainty. This is why I told you earlier that what you're reading is the word of God. It's not the opinion of a man who was, you know, caught up in some spiritual excitement. This is a man who is devoted to the word of God, who has experienced much hardship, and he's writing this saying, I know this, and we can know this. God wants you to know this which is why he pins it in God-breathed scriptures for you. But you can also know it as you test God in it, as you trust him in it. You'll know it in your own experience as well, that God is working together good for you. And all things work together for the eternal good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, our foundation in believing this, our foundation in believing this is what has long been called the golden chain of redemption. Children, on your coloring sheet, you have the golden chain of redemption. Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so you see the ultimate good there. Christ is the son. You are being, as ones who have been adopted, foreknown, predestined, you are being uh, conformed to the image of the Son, so that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, so that there will be a multitude in heaven one day, singing the praises of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a chain. Again, verses 1 through 28, men are statements of truth, the privileges of the believer. And verses 29 through 30 serve as the foundation on which all of these truths stand. And that foundation is laid in the predestination of God. We, we receive these privileges in our covenant with Christ. We're founded in his blood, which comes to us by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2.8. But they are founded in the wise counsel of God which eternally secures the, the entire work for his people. 
all that God is doing in your life is eternally secure in God because he's the one doing the work. And so this is good. What this means is that Christ does not labor in vain. Christ did not die on a cross in vain. Christ did not rise again in vain. He does not exercise his lordship over all creation even now in vain. There is a people of God reserved for the Son of God as a bride to be enjoyed for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. This is sure, and this is what we are seeing here in these verses. These verses have long been referred to as a golden chain of redemption. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Each link then is intricately connected to the links before and after them. If you remove any one of these links, it becomes a a, a shaky chain. It it becomes a, a, a shaky hope that you have, a hope really that you cannot stand on it's more of that hope like that what you cling to, like I hope this works out for me as you jump out of the airplane and prepare to pull the chute, right? You're hoping that thing works, but that's not the sure and steady hope that, that Paul's been describing here. What he's been describing is something that you could tank to the bank as we talked about, right? It's something that you can bet your life on. It's guaranteed for you. It's reserved for you in heaven. It's kept incorruptible and undefiled by anything in this life. And so it's yours, because God holds it. It's in his hands. He works it together. And if you remove any one of these things, you are left to say, well, this might work out for my eternal good, but I'll have to wait and see. And that's no hope at all. That's no comfort at all. You lose a daughter and you have to say, well, this might be good. There's no comfort in that. I just told you what comforted us in that moment was seeing in Scripture that God means all things for good. That's comforting. That's comforting because I can trust that God is sure and steady. Everything that God designed for glory, everything that he designs for glory and happiness as the end goal, everything that he has awaiting us, he decrees by his own purposes to grace and holiness as the way to get that in. So he's working in us by grace, making us holy unto the image of Christ so that we enjoy the happiness of God, the blessedness, the joyfulness of being in Christ. That's what Christ says, if you will obey me, John 15, if you will obey me, my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. It'll be full. So you have a happiness now in your holiness and that holiness is working to, unto you an eternal good in which you will be glorified with Christ forever. His glory, your glory, as we saw in John 17, just as he prays there in John 17 a few weeks ago. Father, restore to me the glories that I had with you before the foundation of the earth. And then he prays later, I have given my glory to them. Right? His glory is your glory. He's wanting you. He's saving you unto this experience that you'll know the glory of God as if it were your own. And then Paul writes here, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everything that God designed for glory and happiness is the end goal. He decrees in this by his purposes, right? Notice the text doesn't say those whom he foreknew to be holy. It's not saying he, those whom he foreknew to be holy. That, that's this understanding, as, as some would hold out, that God can look through, because he's God, he can look through the corridors of time, and he can see who will be holy, 
and so he chooses them. Well, no, that's, that's wrong because it doesn't say that. <laughs> if you leave out the word predestined, then you could argue that, but that's not what it says. It says those whom he predestined to be holy, those whom he predestined to conform to the image of his son. Those are the ones he foreknew. And so his counsel is his own. His wisdom is his own. His providence belongs to him. They do not waver with the, fell, uh, with the frail and fickle will of men. He's not waiting on your bidding. They are sure. God's foreknowledge is best understood in light of his love for his people. He chooses to love each one of us. He's lo- his love for us is the same as his owning us as his children. We were adopted because he chose to do so. Therefore, we love him. That, that's what we see in verse 28. We, we love him. Those who love him, all things work together for good. We love him because he chose us to be his children, as we've seen in previous passages. 1 John 4.19 says we love because he first loved us. In 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, Peter, uh, the apostle Peter opens his book this way. And he's writing to a bunch of Christians in a bunch of different areas in the dispersion. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. According to the foreknowledge of God, so they're elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to, Je- for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So he attributes this as a work of God as well. And so those whom he foreknows, he predestines to be conformed to the image of a son. Holiness is consist in being conformed to the image of Christ. When, when we call God holy, we are saying that he's altogether set apart. When, when we say that it is our, uh, when, let me start here first. The Bible says for you to be holy as God is holy. It's a command from God for you to be holy as God is holy. That, that means you don't get out of holiness by saying, well, this is just the way God made me. No, God didn't make you sinful and messed up, right? That, that is how you are because of the fall, but God is recreating you by his spirit to be conformed to the image of his own son. He's redeeming everything about you. You don't get to look at holiness and say, well, this is just me. I'm just an angry, bitter person. I, I'm just easily upset by things. I'm just whatever. Like I, I just lust, you know, it's just, I, I just love women. You know, like you don't get to say those things. You don't get out of holiness because you think that your sinfulness is too great. Christ died to save you from your sins. If you think your sinfulness is great, what you're in effect saying is that Christ's death is of no effect for your life. What a terrible place to be. But we know that he died. We know that he rose again. We know that we have the Spirit of God in us, as we read in previous verses, Romans 8, 13. If you put to death the deeds of the flesh according to the Spirit that is alive in you, you will walk according to the Spirit, right? So there is work to do, but holiness is becoming like Christ. It's to behold the glory of Jesus Christ for so long and so well and, and, and to continue looking at him. And when you take your gaze away, it's to repent and to turn back and to look at Christ again and say, he is my example. He's my mark. He's the affection of my life. He is what I long to behold. I will look at him unto sanctification. I'll be sanctified as I behold him. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Beholding the glory of Christ, we are transformed from one degree of glory to the next. 
And so Christ is the image of the Father. We're, we're told that he is the exact imprint of his nature. And here what we are told is that we are the image of Christ. Or we're supposed to be. We are being worked into, made into, shaped into the image of Christ. We, we have the spirit as Christ did. We, we are meant to walk and to live as Christ did. We, we ought to bear our sufferings patiently as Christ did. You see, it, it's by the work of God for us in Christ Jesus that we have the image of God restored to us and God's likeness renewed upon us. This is how he's molding and shaping us into the image of Christ. It's by faith in Christ. It's by all of his work through Christ. It's by saving us from our sins in Christ. It's by putting his spirit on us because of the work of Christ. Everything comes down to Christ doing the work and God using the work of Christ by the spirit of God to transform us into the image of Christ. It's Christ, Christ, Christ through and through. That's what salvation and sanctification and glorification are about. They're about praising the name of Jesus. They're about looking unto him. And so we cannot conform ourselves to Christ. Rather, we give ourselves to Christ. And that happens. It takes rise in us because God has given us to Christ. You understand that? Like you don't want, you don't have desires for Christ except that God has given you to Christ already. He works it in you. And in, so, in doing so, he predestines you to be conformed to the same image of his son. This is how you know if you were yet called by God. This is how you know if you were yet in the faith family. Are you being conformed into the image of Christ? Do you desire? Do you desire Christ? Do you desire to put off sinfulness and to be holy as God is holy? Does your love for God reflect the Son's love for God? I don't mean perfectly. You'll never do it perfectly. But I just mean, is there any remnant of such desires in you? Is there any examples of such desires in you? If so, then you are a brother or sister to the firstborn among many brothers. He has preeminence in all things. He is the head of the family of God. He deserves all honor and praise and glory due his name. And praise be to God for seeing fit to call us as sons and daughters to himself in Christ Jesus. He is, Christ is, the Son of God. And so we are now the children of God through God's gracious adoption. It, it may seem that there are only a few children of God, right? You might look around the world, look at the news and think, man, there are just a few children of God in this world. Well, if you look at any one day or any one place or any one time, it might seem that way. However, when all the children of God come together on the last day, it will be a multitude that John says in his revelation that is too great to number. A multitude that is too great to number. A people from every tribe, tongue, and nation called by God to be his children and co-heirs with Christ. When God takes Abraham out, in, out of his tent and into the dark lit night, he tells him to look into the sky and to number the stars if he can, of which he could not do. And he tells him, so will the nations be blessed in you. This, this will be your people. And we know that we are in Abraham if we have faith in Christ. Amen?
We are numbered among Israel if we have faith in Christ. I don't mean Israel, the current nation. I mean Israel, the people of God in the Old Testament. We're numbered among them. Those whom, we're reading on now, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Everyone that is effectually called by God will be justified. This means they are declared free from the debt of sin, which is death. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You are accepted, you are adopted, I should say, as righteous through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin on him was laid. Amen. His righteousness on us was laid. In John chapter 6, as Jesus is describing himself as the bread of life, and anyone who will eat of him will have eternal life, he says this, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. If you're effectually called, you are justified. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, no one can come to me, just a few verses later, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws that person, and I will raise him up on the last day. Glorified, right? You see it there. I mean, Jesus is teaching in John chapter 6, uh, the, the calling, the justification, the, um, the sanctification, and the glorification of the believer. John 6, 47, truly, truly, just a few verses later, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Whoever believes in Christ as Lord and Savior has eternal life. Amen? But because of the work of the Father in calling us to himself, through Christ, we are free from the guilt of every sin we have committed. You're free from the guilt of every sin you've committed or will commit. No sin can condemn you. Romans 8, 1, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So for all who believe in Jesus Christ, the declaration is made. The declaration is final. It will not be reversed. We are no longer criminals in heaven's court. We are owned and loved as God's children. His favor is on us as it is on his own son. Blessed are you who have had your sins erased by God's forgiveness None are justified in this way except those whom God calls to himself. Those who will not hear the call of the gospel remain under guilt and wrath. But to all who will repent of their sins and believe in Christ Jesus as Lord this day, they will be saved and they will receive eternal life. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The power of our sin is broken in God's calling us. The thing that keeps you from coming to Christ is the power of your sin over you. You are a slave to sin. You're a slave to sin. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, Ephesians oh, 2, 1 through 3 says. But the power of sin is broken when God calls you. The guilt of sin is removed when God justifies you. Everything, this is what this means now, everybody pay attention. Everything which stands in the way of you receiving the glory of Christ, your sin and your sinfulness, your guilt of sin, everything which stands in the way of glory has now been removed by God's calling you and by God's justifying you. Praise the Lord. There's nothing that stands in the way 
between you and the Lord. Nothing can hinder your soul from reaching glory. If you believe these things, you believe that Christ is Lord. Notice here that glorified is in the past tense. So it just gets better. Maybe this is better than a, uh, oh man, what was that guy's name? Anyway, whatever, Billy something, the commercials, right? And wait, there's more, right? Notice that glorified is in the past tense. You're not yet glorified. Paul writing this wasn't yet glorified. The people he's writing to, he expects they're going to read it, so they're not yet glorified, right? It's in the past tense. It's a thing which has already been accomplished in eternity future. God is saying through Paul here, your glorification is certain. It's, it's spoken of as, oh, I've already done it. God has saved us. God has called us with a high and holy calling. In his loving and providential purpose, he accomplishes the salvation of his people. When Christ was sent in Matthew chapter 1, we read that he will be called Jesus because he saves his people from their sins. That, that wasn't a mission with no, uh, with no victory inside. It wasn't a mission that was just like, well, we'll roll the dice here and see if this works. You know, God talking to the Son, you can see it in heaven, right? Like, I'm going to send you down. The people are going to reject you real bad. Like, they're going to nail you to a cross. They're going to kill you. And then we'll just see, all right, this is all I know to do. We'll just see if this works out. No. No. No, 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 no. The atonement of Christ is definite for his people. It's not lacking. It's not lacking. Right? He, he dies because there was a people already predestined by the calling of God to become the people of God. People who were going to be sanctified and glorified. A people who were going to be in heaven. Ones that John lays eyes on and says, man, it's a number too great to count. The multitude is large and it's people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they're singing the praises of God. It's sure. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. There's nothing about that that you would say, oh, no, no. It's past tense. It's done. It's accomplished. This is what he longed for. This is what God was doing in Genesis chapter 3 when he looks at the serpent and he says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Well, the seed of the woman. You'll, you'll, you'll bruise his heel, but he'll crush your head. God knew. This is why he calls Eve the mother of all living. It's, it's not simply, I mean, it is that she's a woman, and that is women are made to be motherly, absolutely. But it's even further than that, right? It's, it's that she was going to be the mother of all living according to God. What was the pronouncement of the judgment? Death. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Eve will be become the mother of all living. What does that mean? She's going to be the mother to all who place their faith in Christ, in a sense, right? Christ is going to come. He's going to make a way for all to, to, to be made right, to be redeemed from their sins, justified freely, glorified, right? She's the mother of all living in that sense, that, she was going to, that through her seed was going to come Christ, the head crusher. Amazing. Nothing less than this satisfies the purposes of God. This is what he means 
when he wants to show the glories of a redemption in full. He means for us to see that there is a real people of God. Just as there was always a remnant of Israel in all the dispersions and all the captivities, there was always a remnant who would repent and return to the Lord. So is there a remnant of the church. There's a remnant of God's people who will dwell in heaven with him. And and so all that he does for us, all that he does in us, works unto this great end of glorification. Are God's people chosen? Yes, unto salvation. Are they called? If so, it is unto his kingdom and glory. Are they born again? It is unto an incorruptible inheritance. Are they afflicted? Well, it's working for them an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are, or things that are unseen are eternal. All things, all things work together for the good, the eternal good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. I want you to notice where hope rests. The author of all of these works is the same. The author of every one of these is the same. It's not Paul. It's not you. It's not your grandmama who went to church. Right? It's God. It's God. What we see here is that God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies his people. And if he's doing the work, you can have sure hope. Because he's doing the work, you have sure hope. Our created wills are so fickle, we don't know what we want from day to day. Created powers on this earth are so feeble compared to God. They're not all powerful. They may have power, but they're not all powerful. If our, if our salvation depended on our will or on some created power, then we would be doomed. But God himself undertakes the work of salvation. From beginning to end, it is his work so that we might constantly depend upon him, so that we might constantly subject ourselves to his providential care of our lives, even when we go kicking and screaming into it. In doing so, I promise you, from the scriptures and from my own experience, you will taste and see that God is good. You'll taste and see that he is good. When we ascribe all praise and glory to his great name, it's because you have tasted and seen that he is good. And we will one day, along with the multitude of saints in heaven, cast every crown before the throne of Christ. Declare him righteous and holy. Declare him lovely and perfect. Declare ourselves unfit for such a great king and kingdom. These truths of Romans 8 must serve. They must serve. It's the greatest chapter in the Bible. They must serve as a mighty encouragement to your faith, and your hope. In these truths, we see that God's ways and works are perfect from beginning to end. 
He's working together for the good of all who love God and are called according to his purpose. He's working together all things for the good of all who love God and are called according to his purpose. Amen. You stand to your feet. Let's prepare to receive the Lord's Supper this morning. Go ahead and invite the ushers to come forward. I want to give you a couple of instructions about the Lord's Supper here. First of all, if you are a believer in Christ Jesus, whether you're a member here or not, you're a believer in, the, in, in Christ, baptized, uh, then we invite you to receive the Lord's Supper with us today. Uh, there is on the tray uh, any gluten-free peoples. There's a gluten-free option that's marked, uh, so make note of that. And uh, I'm going to invite the worship team to sing now. I'm going to invite you to worship the new song called Day by Day. And uh, sing the words of it, and then I'll come and lead us in um, worship. Let, let me say this real quick. In, in the Lord's Supper, there are two great promises. And I want you to think about these things as you sing, as you examine your own heart and mind, as you prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, you confess your sins now. There's two great promises for you to remember as you trust that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The first is this, Christ died for sinners. That's what the Lord's Supper is showing us, that there was a real broken body, there was a real event where blood was spilled for the forgiveness of the sins of God's people. And when you eat and you drink, you're saying, I'm feasting on Christ. I'm trusting in this new covenant and his blood. And then the second great truth to help us see that he's working together all things for good is that he's coming again. He's coming again. Paul writes at the end of his instructions on the Lord's Supper that as long as you, as often as you eat and drink this, eat this uh, bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christ is coming for you. Heaven is coming for you. It's there. It's sure you will be glorified. So eat and drink today in faith. Repent of your sins and eat and drink. Take of the Lord in faith today. Let's sing.